Show me the money. This is the MoneyWeb Be a Better Investor podcast. Picking the brains of professional investors on their investment strategies, successes, and mistakes. Your host, Rake Fanika. Welcome to this week's edition of the Be a Better Investor podcast. It's a podcast where I speak to the leading investors and business leaders in the country about the approaches to investments. We also take a peek into their personal investment portfolios. My guest today is Shlelo Giose. He has been in the investment industry since 1993. He is the founder, chief investment officer and principal at First Avenue Investment Management. And uh, prior to founding First Avenue, he was a portfolio manager at Stanlip and Investec Asset Management. Shlelo, thank you so much for joining me. Tell us about your investment journey. When did you decide to make it your career? Do you know, I, I have to trace back capacity for investing to my teenage years. I have to say that I was very fortunate to have a mother who herself had been in love, had fallen in love with accounting. She was an accountant. And she looked at everything through an accounting lens. And what's really unique about her is it extended from just debits and credits to the stock market. So she actually put me on to, well, before the stock market, I have to say banking. She helped me open up my first bank account. I must have been 11 years old. And she said to me, if you save what you can in your bank account in October, every October, I'll come around a year later in October, and I'll double what you have in it. So I took up all manner of jobs that any young person can do, working in a hardware store on Saturday mornings, doing stock taking, any kind of job that was on offer to a young teenager to put money in the bank, to earn money to put into the bank, and then she doubled it every October. And so it, it went from, well, mama, I like the feeling of seeing this money grow. She said, if you really want to see money grow, then try the stock market. So she advised me, by the way, of my first share to buy, the first company I owned, which was a security company, providing men's security. So it went from that to buying the next stock, to buying the next stock. And of course, when I got to university, I joined the university investing club. And I was already a business student at university. So it went from that to getting my first job at HSBC in the United States and just working as an analyst, first on TMT and branching out into other sectors. And then it went from there to doing a master's in investment management. Mm. Then it went from that to working at what is 91 now as an analyst and assistant portfolio manager. Then it went from that to IDC for two years and then Stanlib, where I headed up the um, value investing franchise. So my whole life has been about how to grow assets, um, being interested in companies and what they do and how they do it more importantly. Mm. And so... I can't look at life in any other way through any other prism but that. Where did you grow up? Well, my parents were obviously South African people. They were refugees from South Africa. They left the country before I could even live in this country. So they took us around the world first when they left South Africa to Botswana, Uganda, Kenya. They were on the move, United States. And then from there, I went to uh, London to do my master's and then back to South Africa. You referred earlier to your very first share. What exactly was that share? And you said your mother recommended it. Why did you agree? You know, it's really interesting how parents tell you, you know, you have an alarm system in your house and they say, well, if you really want to buy something, you got to own something that you know something about. And so this company called ADT, 
security company now it used to be owned by a company called Tyco. I think Tyco is situated in northern United States. I believe in the state of Vermont. Sorry, Chubb Securities in northern northern Vermont. And so she said, well, you know, buy Tyco. That was the first share that I bought. And it was really easy because I could relate uh, what I know about the company to what I see in the household and what I see around me. And so that's really the quickest way to get someone involved and curious and interested and even to get to love investing is to is to relate what they know and they see what they touch and feel to a share. And then you can discuss from that how the company makes money. And then you can go on from that to discuss strategy. And then you can go on from there to discuss now things that become really, really difficult, which is financial statement analysis. But as a kid, that's not where you are. As a kid, you just look at how many homes have the secured company. Well, the security company, you know, how many homes use it? And you look at everybody and you say, well, you know, I know about this. And you grow up that way. But as you know, it gets complex as you get older to analyze a company. And so that's that's how it happened. Did you make money from Taco or ADT? I don't remember, by the way, very, very well. But I can tell you this much. Um, you get sucked in by what you see to be success. So I, I do remember that the first few so investments were really successful. The other one that I picked up along the way was IBM because the penetration of computers was, was, was growing you know, at that point in time. And I think IBM was a company that went to Microsoft and said, why don't you put your stuff in our boxes? Uh, that's what really made Microsoft, by the way. I know that IBM was the next one that I bought and I saw that work. Now, you think you were good when you see stuff working and you've done what is little work only because you are buying what you see. But over time, you, you begin to have, you begin to make mistakes and you, you actually lose money. Obviously, you run First Avenue, but do you also have a personal investment portfolio? Obviously, you know, running an investment management company is one of the most complex things you can do, even though I must say that, you know, the president of Ukraine, Zelensky, might back to differ with me. That it's not that complex relative to what he has to deal with. But at, at First Avenue, we made a decision that we don't allow staff, investment staff anyway, but staff in general, to buy shares. If they want access to shares, they buy them in the portfolios in which we run so that we don't create a conflict between the investment analyst or portfolio manager and what we're doing and what we're getting and what the client is getting. Eat our own cooking, if one can call it that. Um, so I'm, I'm very happy to talk to you about what we own in our portfolios because it's, it's also for me. I'm, I'm getting the same outcomes as my clients. Surely you would have a different risk appetite in your personal portfolio versus yes. you know, managing people's savings. You know, there's a sense that that, that would be the case, but it, it's actually not. If you, if you take your best thinking and you, your best thinking for your clients, you do get to find out that actually that is the best thinking for you too. Now, I mean, to make this interview very useful, because you're interested in my personal portfolio, I can talk to that about our global stocks. So in, in local stocks, we really don't want people to go into easy equities and trade better there and front run what the company's doing for clients, right? But in the global arena, I certainly do have a portfolio that, you know, at times is different from what we offer our clients. So that's an easy one to talk about. But let's talk about the global portfolio. Um, recently, yes. uh, you, I, as well as Marta Verzitska of Signia, we were on a panel and she said South African fund managers are not that good when they pick foreign shares. 
it's maybe better to use an international fund manager to do that. On the panel, you disagreed with her quite strongly. So how do you go about picking your global stocks? I think that comment she made was actually not a really well-informed one because, I mean, here's a really, really just good example. Even though it's an extreme example, it's a really great example. There's one guy in this world called Warren Buffett, okay? Warren Buffett really has been sitting there picking stocks by himself together with his colleague, Charlie Munger, just the two of them. They have over $400 billion worth of of assets, well, their market cap anyway, in Berkshire Hathaway. They are the most successful investor in the world. So if you really want to just, you know, demystify the myth of having a large investment team or um, you having to be close to be in New York or you having to be in the United States to do something, here's a guy who's in the cornfields of Nebraska. He's lived there all his life and he hasn't had any help and he's been really, really successful. I can tell you another guy called Seth Klarman down in Florida in the United States. These are not big investment teams because I think what Magda is referring to is you need to have a team about as large as Goldman Sachs or Aberdeen Asset Management and so on. But it's not necessarily true. Another statistic, by the way, is when you look at most global managers, their teams are not more than five people, not more than five people. And there really isn't much of a transition. I have to tell you, there's not much of a transition that an asset manager or an analyst in South Africa has to make from owning one company and understanding a company in South Africa to understanding a company in the United States. It really is no more than three years worth of a transition should you apply yourself to it. So there's an implication in what, what Martha is saying that we must be too stupid to make the transition or we must be too small of an investment team to be able to do that. And both are untrue. So how we do it, by the way, at First Avenue is, is actually very, very unique and very novel. And this is what I want people to actually focus on is that the ability to pick stocks in, in a global pond is incumbent upon you to really do it creatively. So at First Avenue, we are part of something called a group of boutique asset managers, which is an association of boutique managers around the world. There are about 21 of us. And we come together to really replicate the breadth and depth of large managers because we know there's no point in going to London and opening up an office in London, going to New York and doing that in, in London, I mean, in New York and France and so on. So we actually collaborate with other asset managers around the world who are also boutiques about as small as us. And we share company research. Uh, we research companies together. We visit management teams across the world, around the world together. Of course, we do research reports. We show each other. We have a quarterly investment meeting. Uh, we have staff exchanges where we share their analysts come and visit us. We go and visit them. We spend time in different geographies with different managers. We don't all have the same philosophy, but that's really nice because there's a diversity of views. This is really critical how you go about putting yourself in a position to extend your legs and to understand the complexity that comes at you from a global company. Mm-hmm. And you just do that for three or four or five years. And before you know it, there really is no difference between how you think and how a person born in the UK or born in the United States and thinks about companies themselves. That's how we do it. Uh, we have a plethora of knowledge from our partners around the world that comes into us and we, we formed a repository of knowledge about it. Do you analyze global stocks differently to how you analyze South African stocks? Because the macroeconomic conditions can vary significantly between different geographies. I think what you want to say, Rick, is not that we analyze companies differently. It's that we have companies in developed markets that are themselves different from companies here, 
right? So you have a whole biotech industry that exists in the United States that does not exist in South Africa. And, you know, biotech is a derivation of a pharmaceutical company. So once you can analyze GlaxoSmithKline or Pfizer, right, that becomes a commodity type company in the pharma space. Now you just delve deeper into the business model of a biotech company. And what's the example of a biotech company is like Moderna, the vaccine company, right? They use MNRA technology to produce product, inoculation product, whether it's for vaccines or for cancer, by the way, or to deliver therapies. So those are languages, those are terms that you are not familiar with when you're in South Africa are not difficult to learn at all and to understand their place in service delivery, product delivery, revenue generation on a global scale. Another differentiation I can tell you is, you know, the arms contracting business, so defense contracting business. So when you look at Northrop Grumman or Lockheed Martin, right, these are defense companies. Now, if someone tells you about the opportunities that exist in a nuclear submarine, how long it takes to build one and how you account for that using project accounting, right? It's different from anything you see in South Africa. But here again, let me put you in it for about three years and you'll get it just as easily, right? And then here's another difference, which I know you and I know about, is when you look at Amazon, it's a retail company, but it's obviously a digitally based retail company that's really different from say Truers or Fushini. But to transition from knowing Fushini or Truers or Woolworths to Amazon, you know, does require transition period of accumulation of knowledge. But once you've done that over two or three years, again, it's not too difficult to carry on from there because then you can go from Amazon to looking at how Walmart introduced digital strategy into its strategy, right, into its business, same as Target. So there's a transition of business models because these companies are different, but you don't analyze them any differently, really. You just look for the same markers. Let's talk about companies that do not perform according to expectations. First of all, what was the worst investment you've ever made? The worst investment I have ever made? Hmm. I have to say the worst investment I've ever made, I have to say locally anyway in South Africa was Tiger Brands. You know, Tiger Brands, I think, has had a diminution of, you know, its business has been diminishing at a, you know, gradual rate over time. And I think it peaked at the time when Tiger Brands made an acquisition over in Nigeria on Dengoti. And it really burnt a hole in our client's pocket. It burnt, burnt a hole in my pocket because we owned it from that point up until we gave up on it. I don't rem- even remember the price at which we gave up on it. But, you know, the share price peaked at that point and it's never gone back to that level. And since then, Tiger Brands has not become a better business it's been struggling to look for reason to exist. And it's quite frankly been disrupted and, and usurped by other bread companies, for instance, who've, who've now taken over the efficacy of providing uh, better, you know, bread was bread grains is a really big mm. brands, but there's no different bread and Tiger Foods bread and uh, Pioneer Foods bread. Um, so it's really lost efficacy over time. And so we lost a lot of money on this company. I mean, Imagine, I think they paid 5 billion rand for Dengoti and they sold it back for one rand, right? That's just how much value was lost. And it taught me a great lesson, by the way. What is your hit ratio? How many winners do you pick over losers? (laughs) Well, hit ratio, hmm. 
I've never looked at it that way. I've never actually, that would be an interesting statistic to look at that way. We actually obviously just look at our hit ratio in terms of investment performance. And I think it's, well, I know it's associated with also investment style. I would have to say, I can put it in terms of style that when your investment style is in favor, your hit ratio is north of 70 to 80%. When your investment style is out of favor, your hit ratio can go down to or five or ten percent and we've been in a period of the market at first avenue where we've been out of style for i think four years because we tend not to own cyclical companies so we haven't had exposure to resource companies and resource companies have driven the bulk of uh, returns on on the south Africa stock market since since 2016. so our hit ratio has been very poor but since the inflection point of having inflation and interest rates rising now we're back to having a high hit ratio. Our performance is turning around really beautifully. We are now in the 70 to 80% hit ratio mark. Amateur investors or retail investors sometimes act very emotionally. And especially when uh, stocks uh, lose value or they go down. How long do you hang on to a, a stock? And uh, as you've said with Tiger Brands, when do you give up? And when do you take the emotion out of that decision? Or how do you take it yes. out of that decision? Well, that's actually a great point, I have to tell you. Great, great, great point. As an investor, one of the things you do get to learn is not to harm yourself with emotional um, perspectives or with your own emotions is what I want to say. So one of the things that I do, the ways I go about it is whenever I have an, an inkling to do something, I always ask myself and I just check in with myself if the decision that I'm about to make is you know, how much of the decision that I'm about to make is driven by emotions. And you can usually feel it that I think I'm a little concerned here. I'm a little concerned um, more than I should be. Or I think I'm driven by, I think I'm upset. I think I'm annoyed or I think I'm actually fearful, right? And so I have a great ability to, I think it's out of habit now that I check in with my emotions and I check in with the motive that I'm feeling to do something. But feelings aside, uh, because I don't think that's enough. Feelings aside, you really have to codify what you do to cut a losing position. And so we like to think about it as follows. We like to say, is the information I'm getting, is it is it discomforting or is it disconfirming? If the information that you're getting for a company or about a company's performance, when you look at its results, for instance, and you talk to management about it or you read about it, if that information is discomforting, uh, that's the emotional element. It's discomforting. Okay, it makes me uncomfortable. It can make me actually panic. It can make me be excited or, you know, in a negative way, I get to say. But if it's disconfirming your thesis, okay, now the thesis part is your investment thesis. If it's disconfirming, then that's when you, you acknowledge that I'm wrong. Okay, now when you acknowledge that you're wrong, you now go back into the reasons you bought the company and you rebuild those reasons. When you rebuild them and you come up with a different thesis, then you're, you're, you're confirming to yourself that indeed I was wrong. No matter how much you are in a loss-making position, cut it. I think you've seen that with Warren Buffett two years ago when COVID hit and he realized that airlines are going to be challenged to the point that they may actually go out of business. Uh, he's actually proven to be wrong at that point. They didn't go out of business, but he, he knew that airlines may never be the same again. They may actually go into bankruptcy. When he felt that what he was seeing from COVID was disconfirming his theory. 
he lost a lot of money, but he cut his position completely. And that's how we felt with Tiger Brands. We just cut it. But it's a different type of decision when you want to sell out of a stock to take a profit because the risk there is that you become greedy and you really want to uh, make as much money as possible. Um, and, of course, if you sell the, the stock, uh, you won't benefit from any upside. So that decision may be based on greed, while when you sell out of a stock to cut a loss, that must be a decision based on fear. Is there a big difference? There is a difference, but the difference is not, you know, it's not exclusive, meaning that fear does play a role when you are fearful of what could happen to airlines. As an example, Warren Buffett, when you're fearful, if you can back up your fear with facts, then it's not a bad thing. Fear is really terrible when you can't back it up with facts, right? So here, here comes COVID, for instance, and you say to yourself, well, Warren Buffett says to himself, you know, I'm really fearful of what could happen to this industry. It could actually be decimated. Now, he hasn't been proven to be right that the airline industry actually came out okay because the government, by the way, stepped in. But he wasn't wrong. It's factually the companies are not where they, they haven't come back to where they should have been, or at least to pre-COVID levels. But you're right that there is an element of fear. If you can only inform that fear with facts, that's when it's not such a bad thing to have been fearful. It's a bad thing to be fearful without any facts. And when you go back to us with Tiger Brands, yes, we were fearful about capital allocation, about the huge amounts of money that were spent on Dangote and not giving returns back. And so we were obviously fearful of what could happen to the business, and that is defocusing the business away from its core business in South Africa. And so those fears, we back, back those up with facts. In the long term, when you look at since what, what has happened to Tiger Brands since then, it's justified that our fear was justified. It actually proved correct. So fear can prove to be right. Just make sure that as an analyst, you have the facts to back it up. Is there a difference between subjectivity and emotion when it comes to investment decisions? Subjectivity and emotions. I mean, I, I think that every investment decision is subjective, even in the application of facts, because we all have different investment philosophies. You know, what I choose as, as my investment philosophy is subjective. But, you know, being subjective and being greedy, because you can also, you know, the other example we haven't talked about is when a share goes upwards and you subjectively make a decision that, well, this is still a good company. It deserves to trade where it does. Meanwhile, you don't realize that, of course, you're going to think that way. It's called confirmation bias, right? You are biased to confirm what you subjectively thought was correct because you're greedy, right? So these things intersect and they really require you to never forget to bring along the facts along the way. If you're greedy or you're fearful, but you never bring along the facts to justify them, then I think you're making a mistake. But I think the point you raise is mostly what I see with retail investors, they can get really excited about a stock going up, that they don't need to summon the facts. They say, well, let me just ride the trend as it lasts. And that's what people with technical analysis, people in technical analysis do. They just ride the trend when it goes up, they ride it when it goes down. Again, when it goes down, they're fearful, but they don't bring along the facts. I think hope also plays a role. And that is your worst investment uh, strategy, because when something falls, you hope it will go up again. And you don't base your decision on, uh, 
in fact, as you've just said. Yes. But anyway, we'll have to leave it there. Stalo, thank you so much for your time and uh, good luck with the future, the next, what is it, 30 years of your investment journey. Oh, I appreciate that. Long may, long may those years last. I appreciate that, Rake. And thank you, by the way. You do a great job yourself. Thanks, uh, Shlelo. That was Shlelo Giose. He is the Chief Investment Officer, Founder and Principal at First Avenue Investment Management. Show me the money. That was the Money Web. Be a better investor podcast with Rake for Kneecap. Thanks for listening. Catch up and listen to all the Money Web podcasts on moneyweb.co.za or the app. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.